we saw that just as Bezalel had apprentices under him, so also Christ, our heavenly Bezalel, as Spurgeon calls him, he had 12 apostles. And these had uh, un- others under them later after Christ ascended. And all of these, in one way or another, partake in the building up of the church. For us then, I wanted us to reflect last week that we are partly the building being built up. When we come on Sunday, we are being built up as this body through the Word, through, through the sacraments and all these things, but we are also builders as well. Just as Christ is church, his, it's His body, but He is chief builder, we also build one another up, especially on the Lord's Day. Well, today we're going to touch briefly upon the last half of paragraph 5. We're going to wrap that up, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time with paragraph 6 and consider the institution, the constituting of the local church, and we'll have some special application for the merge as well, okay? Well, if you have your, uh, your confession of faith, go ahead and open up to paragraph 5 again. Paragraph 5 of chapter 26. I'm only going to expound the latter half, but just to put everything in context, let's read the whole paragraph, okay? It says, In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word, Those thus called, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. All right. Well, if we summarize the first half of the paragraph last week as Christ is the one who is building his church, or we could say Christ is the one who is calling the elect unto himself, We could say that the second half of this paragraph has to do with the fact that Christ not only calls the elect to himself, but since the church is his body, he can do no other but to call them also to his church. And this also to specifically local churches as well. Christ does not just call men and women to be members of the universal church, but as the confession says, to be members of, quote, particular societies or churches as well. I remember many years ago now, I was a maintenance guy in my church in California, and I was working with a guy, a contractor. Uh, we were installing floor molding in the school. The church had a school. He was a really nice guy. We had a fun time talking. He was funny, and he claimed to be a Christian, and I think I even heard him refer to my, what I considered my home church as his home church, though I had never met him before. As often happens when you're doing jobs like that over hours of time, you talk with people and you pass the time. We talked about all kinds of things, but somewhere in the conversation, he said to me, and we're from California, and okay, just so you know, this is a Calvary Chapel, okay? So think Jesus people. This guy was like straight out of the 70s, like Jesus revolution, okay? So that will make sense. He goes, he said, you know, bro, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Not that that's a reflection of Calvary Chapel and the Jesus movement. That was just this guy, okay? Now, there are many things wrong with what he said, and I wasn't even Reformed back then, and I remember thinking, like, there's a lot of things wrong with what you just said. 
But for a moment, consider his claim. It's basically claiming that you can have fellowship with Christ without having fellowship with the body of Christ. Or that you can be a member of the universal church without being a member of a local visible church. Now, let me ask you this. Can someone technically have fellowship with Christ without having fellowship with the local body? I see somebody nodding yes. Would you like to explain why, Paul? Would you like to sin boldly in front of everyone? Yeah. I would say, yes, technically, for a brief period of time, that can be true. I know when Christ saved me, it was not in the context of the local church or in a church service. I had heard the gospel growing up, but when the Lord saved me, I was on a street corner. I wasn't even near a local church. He saved me, though, in that moment, and I had fellowship with him, and I would say I was part of the universal body of Christ, But as to a particular church, I was not yet a member. So I guess in a tortured sort of logic kind of way, we could say, yeah, you don't have to be a Christian bro to, or you don't have to go to church bro to be a Christian, I guess. And yet, there's a very deadly way in which that is not true at all. To argue that someone who has been called by Christ will under normal circumstances continue in such an indefinite state, absolutely not. We say no. Very often, Christ speaks of his church or his churches or believers, and not just, not just his mystical body, but even local churches as his own self. They are me, he says. Therefore, we read, Saul began ravaging the church. Which church? The church of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a specific church. And yet Christ says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Right? On Christ... Or Christ says of the judgment day, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And so for those who claim to know Christ, to have fellowship with him, but do not have fellowship with his body, Christ will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You might say, well, Lord, when did you not know me? When did you ever come to my body? When did you ever know other believers and fellowship with them? They are my body. If you don't know them, I don't know how I can know you. In fact, I would say one of the greatest indicators that you have fellowship with Christ, that you are a member of the universal church, is if you are a member of a local body. And so with our confession, we hold not only that Christ calls us unto himself, but unto his church and specifically unto local visible bodies. You know, last week I gave the comparison um, that, that we are all born without clothes, 
right? I have yet to read of a child being born fully clothed in their Easter best, right? Um, maybe one day that will happen. But we're all born, as they say, naked as a jaybird, right? Immediately after that, the nurse will grab the child, clean them, and swaddle them up tightly, right? Very quickly. We don't let the child go unclothed. And they will remain in that state, hopefully, though there might be moments here and there, for the rest of their life being clothed. And so ought it to be with Christians. We are born again, naked as it were, without the clothing of the local church. Though we seek to be clothed as quickly as possible and remain clothed that way until we go on to glory. Now, there are many ways we could give further evidence of this from the Scripture. The way I want us to consider, though, is really the way that the confession argues, which is to argue that you cannot fully obey Christ apart from the local church. You cannot fully obey God apart from the local church. Think of how scandalous that is to our own age, maybe to all ages in a certain sense. We're, uh, we were talking beforehand, and Jeff was telling the story of someone who said, I, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. It's kind of like this individualizing of worship, right? And the idea that I can tell you, you can't worship God unless you do it this certain way, that's scandalous, right, to the world. But from the scriptures, we see that that's true. If you're not in a local church, how can you be doing this? Again, look at paragraph 5. Look at the, uh, the last part of it. It says, The Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father. Okay, so he calls them unto himself. But then we see the confession connects this with their obedience that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word. So Christ saves us that we might walk in obedience. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. That's one of the reasons why God saved us, that we might glorify him through good works and obedience. But then notice the connection that the confession makes to that general purpose and calling of obedience, and then it connects it particularly to worship and life in the local church. Those thus called, he commandeth to walk in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. So he calls them to obedience, he prescribes things to them in his word, and yet we see that the performance of what is due to God, that public worship required of them, is to be done in particular societies and churches. We could say this very strongly. You can't worship God as you ought outside of the local church. Really all that much. Now, of course, there is family worship, or what the confession calls private worship. There is what we call secret worship, or individual worship. You might call that devotions. We might also extend this to other kinds of worship in the sense that all of life is kind of honoring and giving glory to God. But the greatest worship of all, with the most voices, 
with the hearts joined together, with the greatest means of grace, you cannot do those apart from the local church. And so you cannot give the lion's share of worship that God is due. Furthermore, we can say there are just so many other commands you cannot obey apart from a local body. Jason put it very pithily last week, speaking of the one another's, he's like, you know, it implies another, right? You can't do the one another's without another. That's very true of keeping the commandments of God. How do you love someone else if they're not there? How do you care for someone? How do you pray for someone, love them, give, serve one another apart from the local body? You can't. And so while local church membership is tied to our mutual edification, that's one of the reasons why we we do this, right? One of the reasons why we walk in particular societies. Yet the confession also says it is fundamentally tied to our obedience. You can't give Christ what he requires apart from the local church. John says, by this we know we have come to know him. Think back of that man. He was essentially saying, I know God. He's, he's claiming that here. I know God, right? By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Since the lion's share then of our worship and obedience and keeping of God's commandments is done in the local body, for someone to say, I have come to know God, but I'm standing outside of that place on purpose where I give obedience and fulfill the commandments of God, Scripture says, logically, you're a liar. <laughs> I didn't say that to the man when I was working with him because we had to hope, like do a whole lot of floor molding, and I, I don't know how that would have gone, right? Um, I don't know what I said, but that's the implication of it. There, there's, there's a lack of truth in what you're saying. You do not know him because you're apart from the place where you fulfill the majority of your obedience, okay? Well, that's the second half of paragraph five. Any questions before we move on? Any questions? I will take a full tense. Billy? Yeah, and, and it's funny how we, we tend to have shifted so much today in terms of just thinking of the means of grace and sanctification. I think a lot of times if you meet with a counselor and you're struggling with sin, they might tell you, well, let's, let's talk about those, the daily worship, your devotions and the reading of Word of God and prayer. That's true, but I wonder if we were better at Lord's Day worship we, we might not be so reliant. We might do those things, but they're supplementary. We tend to look at the Lord's Day as almost supplementary to what we do throughout the rest of the week, right? So yeah, it's true. It's this lack of a reverencing for what we do here, the worship we give, right? So...
Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, the idea of word and spirit in the confession kind of pops up in three places, effectual calling, sanctification, and Christ's governing of his church. So he calls us out of the world to himself, he builds us up, and he governs his church through word and spirit. And, and we would say the lion's share of that is, is what's happening on the Lord's day through the word, right? So, Tom? That's a good question. It, they're trying, it's mutually interpretive. So it's kind of shedding light, and we'll talk about this in a second when we get to paragraph six. But in many ways, as you might think of a society of people as, as kind of mutually with one another, that's what it's getting out with the church. And we'll, we'll hit on that more in a second, okay? All right, you're last, Jeff. You get the last word. Yeah, and I think even kind of piggybacking on that, when we look at the end game of where this is going, it's one massive congregational worship service, right? It's not all these people worshiping God in their own quiet times in the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's all of us with one voice singing together. And, and there's, there's a picture of a grandeur there that you just don't have at, on your own as, as legitimate and we would say confessional as secret worship is. The confession speaks of it as family worship as well, but it does not have the, the oomph, if you will, okay, of public. All right, well, let's get going, and hopefully we can kind of maybe get a bit more to your question there, Tom. Let's continue on with paragraph 6, chapter 26. Paragraph 6. It says, the members of these churches are saints by calling visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel." All right, well, as I said last week, what this paragraph is starting to get at um, is the instituting of a local church, okay? Kind of looking at it, this is almost, uh, we're analyzing what is a local church in many ways. The first half of paragraph six really is taking much of what has been said before in this chapter, which is often how the confession works. It kind of builds on what has been said before, right? For example, we see the idea of visible saints from paragraph 2. If you look back at paragraph 2, it says, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it 
not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, are and may be called visible saints, and of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. Well, that description of these members as visible saints manifesting their profession by their faith and obedience is reincorporated here into the beginning of chapter or paragraph 6. Furthermore, we can say there's, there's also a mention to paragraph 5 in paragraph 6, particularly as it speaks of their obedience unto that call of Christ. Well, that's, that's an obedience to the call to walk together in local churches. Okay, so it's kind of taking all these things, and now with the second half, it's going to add something new. It says, basically, what we're getting at is how do they walk together in particular societies? Or what does that mean, a particular society? Maybe to connect back to paragraph two, namely that only visible saints are what churches are to be constituted of. Well, what does that mean that they are constituted? How is a local church constituted? Okay? The confession explains that this happens when these visible saints, quote, do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. Now, what this is getting at, it's not saying it explicitly, but this is getting at the idea of the matter and form of a local church. Um, matter and form. We don't really think a lot in those terms today. Um, they're older, I think they're really Aristotelian categories. Um, they're older philosophical categories, but they're used a lot in theology, all right? What they do is they describe the substance of something. Do you want to know what something's whatness is? What is it made of? Well, it's made of matter and form, okay? When describing a local church, our theological forebears did so in terms of matter and form. If you know how to look for it, both matter and form are mentioned here in this paragraph. First, the matter, or we could say the raw materials of what a local church is composed of. The raw materials is visible saints, those professing faith and obedience to Christ. Those are the only materials we are allowed to work with, biblically speaking. If someone does not profess faith and obedience, or if there is reason with the judgment of charity to doubt their profession and obedience, then they are not fit materials for a local church because we see no other kinds of local or materials used in the New Testament other than visible saints. There's an interesting story in the journal of John Winthrop. John Winthrop was uh, an early governor of what would later become the colony of Massachusetts. And that time, it was New England was settled far and away by Congregationalists. So you'll have a lot of these interesting facts about the history of Congregationalism from his journal. Uh, there's a lot of funny stories in there, too. There's a lot of interesting things, but we don't have time to go into that. But he tells us about a time when some men wished to form a new church, and yet it was advised against by others because they were not persuaded that some of those men were visible saints, okay? He says, Mr. Mather and others of Dorchester, now Mr. Mather there is Richard Mather, Mather the senior, okay? 
if you know anything about New England history, the Mather name is huge. Um, from him, you have, oh, Cotton Mather. You have Increase Mather. And just the Mather name is huge. And this is the progenitor of all those, Richard Mather. Okay? Richard Mather and others of Dorchester, Massachusetts, intending to begin a new church there, a great part of the old one being gone to Connecticut. Now, this time, Connecticut was the frontier. People are, are leaving Massachusetts. They're like, this is the old world. We're going to the new, right? Um, they go. The rest of his church, his church goes. So Richard Mather and these others are going to form a new church, okay? It says, they desired the approval of the other churches and of the magistrates, and accordingly, they, uh, they assembled this day, and after some of them had given proof of their gifts, they made confession of their faith, which was approved of. So some of them, probably Richard Mather, demonstrated their gifts, meaning he probably gave a word of exhortation showing, yes, I am called to be a pastor or whatever. And then they gave a confession of their faith. Their doctrine was orthodox. Everything was fine so far, right? It says, but proceeding to manifest the work of God's grace in themselves, the churches by their elders and the magistrates thought them not meet or fit at present to be the foundation of a church. And thereupon they were content to forbear to join till further consideration. So they doubted their profession of faith. They doubted the work of grace in their hearts, which means they doubted that they were visible saints. And they said, therefore, you are not fit to compose a new church. He explains the reason was that most of them, Mr. Mather and one other accepted, right? So no shame upon the Mather name, right? Not Mr. Mather. They had built their comfort of salvation upon unsound grounds, some upon dreams and ravishes of the spirit by fits, right? Others upon the reformation of their lives, others upon duties and performances. So they really didn't give gospel answers um, when it came to demonstrating the work of God's grace in them. There's nothing wrong with pointing to your fruit to show that a work of grace has been done inside of you. In fact, that's part of what it means to be a visible saint, right? However, if you go to ask someone, I'm sure Jason has experienced this too, for the hope that is within them, a reason for the hope that is within them, and there's the gospel's kind of an afterthought, then you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know. That, the, the works, the reformation of your life should be more of an afterthought, or at least you're pointing that this is a work of Christ. If that's not really in there, you're kind of like, oh, let's keep talking. Let's keep working. We're not quite there yet because there really should be more gospel in that. Um, and these guys are pointing to other things that are unsound, okay? The thing to notice, though, is that their profession as visible saints was doubted, and so they told them they are not fit to form a church because only visible saints are the proper matter of a church. And that's the first thing that paragraph 6 is really getting at, okay? Any questions before we move on? Then the confession deals with the form, the form of the church. The form is the particular arrangement of the matter which makes it a church, okay? You can take all kinds of matter and make it into different things. You can take marble and you could turn it into a countertop. 
You could also turn it into a statue, right? The, the form is the arrangement of the matter. And this is now getting at the arrangement which makes it a church. You know, you can take visible saints and arrange them in all kinds of things, but that doesn't mean you've formed a church necessarily. There are missionary agencies which really only consist of what we might call visible saints, but they are no church. Or think of seminaries. They really only are to consist of visible saints in their faculty and student body. In fact, you typically kind of have to demonstrate you are a visible saint. You have to give a confession of your faith, maybe some kind of recommendation from a local pastor. I am a visible saint, therefore I can teach or study here, and yet seminary does not form a church either. Rather, with a church, visible saints are agreeing not necessarily to educate future ministers, but they are claiming, as the confession says, professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. By ordinances of the gospel are meant church ordinances, those commandments which Christ has given to his church. That's what these visible saints are agreeing to do, okay? That's the form of what they're agreeing to do. But notice, it also says that, quote, they willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord, one to another, by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. They are agreeing together to walk in, in these gospel ordinances. What this is getting at is the idea of church covenant. Okay, This is why if you read older Congregationalists or Baptists, if you ask them what the matter of a church is, they'll say visible saints. If you ask them what the form is, they'll say a church covenant. Okay, You don't have those two things, you don't have a local visible church. For example, the Cambridge Platform of Polity, which was very, this is a New England document, very influential on the Savoy, and I would say far more complete than the Savoy is. They write, chapter 3, the matter of a visible church are saints by calling. Then chapter 4, of the form of the church, and, and as I read this, listen to the similarities of paragraph 6 in our own confession. It says, this form is the visible covenant, agreement, or consent, whereby they give, themselves un, give up themselves unto the Lord to the observing of the ordinances of Christ together in the same society, which is usually called the church covenant. So there, Tom, the word society was used. And I guess what we're getting at by using society is we're saying there are all kinds of societies and groups, right? The church is a particular society, and it does these particular church things, these ordinances, okay? So the matter is visible saints, and the form is covenanting or consenting to walk together in gospel ordinances. Think of it this way. If there are no visible saints, it doesn't matter if they covenant together even to walk in gospel ordinances, they are no true visible saints, right? You can't have something that is, has no matter. And the only proper matter of a visible church is visible saints. Now, of course, some churches might and do allow for a mixture of visible saints and those who they would not call visible saints, but they would say they're willing hearers of the gospel, right? They're not 
living openly in scandalous sin. Presbyterian churches historically held that view. The great irony is most Presbyterians today are far more congregational than they realize. They left the Presbyterianism of 300 years ago 300 years ago. And it's so funny when, when what they think they're describing as Presbyterianism, you're like, mm, that's modified congregationalism, but that's a conversation for another day, okay? Um, historically, though, some churches have allowed for a mixture of visible saints and others, but we want to be careful to not jump to the gun, to not jump to pull the trigger, do the thing too fast, um, to say that they are not true visible churches. We want to be careful not to do that. They are erring in a certain aspect of their ecclesiology, but not so badly as to make them no church. However, if there are no visible saints whatsoever found in that local body, you cannot have a true visible church, okay? But even if you have visible saints, if they do not willingly consent to walk together in a church state, then you don't have a true visible church. Let's say I were to see, I were to go to a pastor's conference and I were to see, oh, all these men here, I know those are visible saints, and I were to run up to them, and I'd say, hey, we're all at church now, and I'm your pastor, and if you leave, I'm going to discipline you. Would we be a true church constituted? No. They have not willingly consented to walk with me. I can't just declare I am now their pastor over them, right? You don't do that with a job. You don't walk in and say, I have a job here now. Uh, (laughs) Excuse me? You don't say to a woman, you're my wife now. Okay, creep, that would be a big deal, right? We don't do that in other aspects of life. You don't go to an embassy, I'm a citizen of your nation now. Excuse me, there was no willing consent back and forth, and so no, you are not properly a citizen. So also, a church cannot be constituted without willing consent. However, you may have visible saints, they may be willingly consenting to walk together, but it has to be specifically in church ordinances, right? Because if you look at a seminary, well, that could be made of visible saints. They're willingly consenting to walk together, but not in church ordinances, okay? So you kind of have to have those things together. Now, I do want to speak for a moment about church covenant. On the one hand, to argue for it and its legitimate use, but also to be careful of how we speak about it, because historically, this was a somewhat controversial thing. Um, If you're a Baptist, who here has only ever been a Baptist? Or maybe non-denom, which is like a Baptist in denial, we could say, okay? It's like, you're really a Baptist, right? If you're a Baptist, most likely church covenant is maybe like all you've ever known. It's like, well, why would you not have a church covenant? That would be crazy, Try and find a Presbyterian church that has a church covenant. I literally tried. I Googled it. You won't find one. Now, they may have the essence of a church covenant, but by and large, a church covenant is a congregationalist thing. It's something they were known for, and it's actually something that they were criticized for, okay? However, the congregationalists had to be very careful of how they spoke of a church covenant. And let me say it this way. If a covenant is the form of a true church, and many churches do not have a church covenant, nor do they formally covenant together, are they then true visible churches? What do you think? 
I'm seeing some potential no's. Don't you want to sin boldly? What do you think? Someone saying no? Thank you. Tom? Okay. Yeah? Well, to answer that question, first of all, some historically said no. They are not true churches if they are not covenanting together. Now, these were the separatists. These were the pilgrims who settled not in Massachusetts, but in Plymouth. Eventually, they kind of all became the same thing, but originally they were two different groups, and at first they were kind of looking at each other like, I don't really know if we can hang out with you. But then eventually, they kind of became the same thing eventually. They were the ones who left the Church of England because they argued the Church of England were no true churches. They were too polluted by popery. But sometimes they also argued that they could not be true churches because they had not publicly and formally covenanted together. The other Congregationalists, we would say the majority, sometimes uh, historians call these non-separating, and these are largely the ones from which particular Baptists come from, okay? They argued, no, even though a church has not formally publicly covenanted together, they can still be a true visible church if there is willing consent. Because all a covenant is at the end of the day is consenting to walk together And if they are walking together in gospel ordinances, they can still be a true visible church. I kind of wonder if that's why our own confession does not use the word covenant here. Because the Presbyterians like took that as a jab at them because they did not covenant. And so sometimes I think the Congregationalists would just say, well, if there's consent, that's all we mean by this. Okay, we're not trying to unchurch you. If there's that, then they are a true visible church, okay? For example, listen to Henry Jacob. Henry Jacob Jacob was the Jacob behind uh, the Jacob, Lathrop, and Jesse church, um, which was the church from which many of the early particular Baptist churches came out. He's also the reason why the early Congregationalists, you know what they were called? Jacobites, okay? Before you were called Congregational, you were called Jacobites. But listen to what he says. The particular congregations of England are true churches accidentally. Now, he's using accident in not like they sneezed and they, oh, I made a church, okay? He means they have the qualities of a true church, though not formally, okay? He says, my meaning is that as those particular congregations have in them godly and holy Christians consociated together, associated, agreeing together, whatever, to serve God so far as they see agreeable to his word, so they are in right from Christ, essentially true churches of God, and are so to be acknowledged by us and in public not to be absolutely separated from. Now, the Jacobites, they did separate from those churches because they said there's too much popery going on in this place for my congregation, but I'm not going to say you're not a true church. It's very much for the reason why I would not join a Presbyterian church, not because of popery necessarily, but in my conscience, I'm not going to be here while you're baptizing babies, but I'm not going to say you are a false church, okay? That's a difference. And note, 
it was from that group that the majority of particular Baptists come from, okay? There's an interesting story, again, in John Winthrop's journal, and it has to do with this very thing, okay? It's, it's kind of a funny story. This is why history is so funny. He says, two of the elders of every church met at Saugus. Saugus is a town in Massachusetts. He says, two of the elders of every church met at Saugus and spent there three days. The occasion was that several of the brethren of that church did not like the proceedings of the pastor and were in doubt whether they were a true church or not and did separate from church communion. So apparently, we're not told exactly what happened, but the pastor did something unusual in the forming of this new church. It was, it was irregular. And some of the members were like, well, are we then a true church? And if we're not a true church, I shouldn't be here doing church ordinances because that's only for the church. It'd be like if you got married and then you found out the man was not actually a licensed minister to marry you. You'd be like, uh, are we married? Like, let's not live together for a second while we get this. That's kind of what's going on in their mind. It's a real tender conscience kind of thing, okay? Well, they asked the neighboring ministers to come and give their advice, and we read this. Accordingly, being met, and both parties, after much debate being heard, it was agreed that they were a true church, though not constituted at first in due order, yet afterwards their consent and practice of a church estate had supplied that defect, and so all were reconciled. So there are many churches that do not have a church covenant as we do, but you want to be careful, even though we speak of that as the form of a church, as like unchurching them, because they do have the essence of a church covenant, okay? Now, with that being said, very quickly, with the time we have left, I want to argue, though, for the validity of a formal church covenant and the goodness of formally covenanting together. And I hope you're paying attention, because if we, Lord willing, merge... We will look at that beginning time, apart from the legal stuff of this, through a covenanting ceremony together. Okay, I'm not going to speak of what that ceremony is, but I want to argue for the validity of it. Here I want to read something very good from John Cotton. John Cotton has many excellent books on congregationalism, but this is from his book called The Way of the Churches of New England. They were congregational. It's, it's specifically dealing with Presbyterian criticisms of congregationalism, one of which was the fact that Congregationalists had a church covenant, okay? Listen to what he says, how he speaks of church covenant. It's, it's beautiful. He says, "...the mutual relation wherein all the members in the church stand to one another, members to members, and all of them to their officers, and their officers to them, together with their mutual interest in one another and mutual power over one another, do all of them necessarily imply a mutual confederacy? Okay? It implies a mutual confederacy. Now, confederacy there just means being covenanted together. Con comes from the Latin with, federacy from foidus, foidus, which means a covenant, right? So confederacy is covenanted together with. They are covenanting mutually together. Now, you may notice some overlap there between some government language and things like that. Before we had the Constitution, what was our governing document called? Articles of 
confederation? What? There's a reason for that. Some of this overlap. We'll look at that in a moment. But Cotton's point, he's saying, is all these things, our mutual relations, our duties towards one another, they necessarily imply a mutual confederacy with one another. You can't do them without a confederating together. He says, and whosoever will partake herein must partake in their confederacy. Now he gives this answer. This is very good, this explanation. He says, suppose a godly Christian come over to New England, as every year some or other do. There is not any minister of any of our churches can usurp pastoral authority over him unless that Christian call him thereto or profess his subjection to his ministration according to God. So if a visitor comes into church, Jason and I cannot say, how's it going? You're now a member of my flock. You better start tithing. I hope you make a lot of money and you're in the roles, and if you try to leave, we're going to discipline you, right? No, you can't do that. That's tyranny, right? He continues, this is very good, nor can such a man, a visitor, expect any minister's watchfulness over him as minister unless the minister see just cause to accept such a charge and profess so much. Now, I'm sure Jason has experienced this. I kind of cringe. I know, some, I know they don't mean a bad thing when they say this. But there are times when people are visiting for a period of time, and they'll refer to me as their pastor. And I'm kind of like, I, I, I don't correct them because you're like, okay, I know what you mean. I'm not going to jump all over you. But I don't consider you technically a member of my flock, which means you do not get my full attention and all my pastoral care. Those who are officially my flock that we have covenanted together, they're going to get it way before you. I will love you. I will serve you. But until then, I'm technically not your pastor, and I hope you don't see me having that kind of a watchfulness over you, right? Cotton continues, No church in the country, nor all the members of any church, can take upon them to censure any stranger, though they be an inhabitant amongst them unless he give himself to them and profess his subjection to the gospel of Christ amongst them. There's no church discipline over a members, someone who's not a member of your church. You don't have authority over them. Paul says, what do I have to do with outsiders, right? And then at the end, he says this, let men call this expression of mutual agreement by what name they please. This is no other than what we call church covenant. So you Presbyterians, I get it. You don't like the name Church Covenant, that's fine. All we mean is by what you do as well. That's all we mean by it, okay? Now, someone might argue, and in, indeed they do, with official church membership today, which really what they're doing is arguing against covenanting together, if you think about that. They'll argue it's found nowhere in Scripture, okay? I would say it's implied, it's implicit, but listen to what Cotton also says. He says, it is evident by the light of nature that all civil, meaning those in a nation, all civil relations are founded in covenant, okay? That's very true. We speak of governments and citizenship all the time in using covenantal language, and we don't even think about it, right? That's why we had the Articles of Confederation. We speak of being in treaties. You know what they call a treaty in the Old Testament? covenant, right? Or a compact. 
We speak of being in treaties with other nations. In fact, one, uh, many years, uh, not many, a while back at Sovereign Joy, I actually argued that our declaration of independence was none other than a covenant. How does it end? We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Well, that's kind of similar to we give up ourselves to one another, isn't it? Cotton's point is that this is true of human relationships in general. He says, There is no other way given whereby a people free from natural and compulsory engagements can be united or combined together into one visible body to stand by mutual relation, fellow members of the same body, but only by mutual covenants, as appeareth between husband and wife in the family, magistrate and subjects in the commonwealth, fellow citizens in the same city. And therefore, in the New Testament, when a people whom the apostles by their ministry had converted were to be gathered by them into church state, what else did the apostles do but combine them into one body as one chaste virgin to a spouse in Jesus Christ, right? So, so in many ways, yeah, you don't read of official church membership, but it's implied by the relationships. And it's also something we see of human relationships in general. It's very much here what the confession speaks of in uh, chapter 1, paragraph 6, where it says that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. If you have a membership to your gym, you will have a membership to the church and society of God, right? And that's not crazy. That's just something humans do. And we're members of all kinds of little societies. We just don't think of it that way, okay? Lastly, by way of exhortation, Consider here the weightiness of what it means to covenant with one another. I love the language used by the confession and Baptists and Congregationalists in general of giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another in covenant. When we join, we aren't just agreeing to give our time, to give our effort. We are agreeing to give ourselves. And notice, it's giving up oneself. That language in Scripture can sometimes be used to speak of giving someone into the custody of someone else. It's very much, you're surrendering yourself to this body. I am giving you myself. You are giving yourself to me. It's much bigger than we are kind of just agreeing to hang out together. No, we're pledging ourselves to one another you know, we often talk about the seriousness and the weightiness of getting married. What's, not, what's interesting is for our theological forebears, there was a similar kind of seriousness in covenanting together. And you see this in the fact that sometimes they ended their church covenants with, till death do us part. It was considered a very serious thing. Brothers and sisters, consider that. This is what, as we will be merging together, what we will be doing to one another. I give myself to you. <laughs> you have me, not just my time and my money. You have my heart, right? We do this to one another that we walk together in gospel ordinances, okay? Any questions? I have a few, few minutes. 
I can take one or two. Give you 10 seconds. Ben? Pardon? Yeah, so although in the covenanting ceremony, we'll have to work that out because it'll be interesting because we're merging two churches. Um, But there will be some kind of vows, if you will, in a certain sense, and that will hopefully be overseen by, by another joining minister, right, or ministers to give their approval, right? We have, we have historical examples of how they did that. So, Billy? Yeah, and I'm not saying it's just from the light of nature. I think it's implied, um, but I think it's also supported in the light of nature as well. So, yeah. Dietrich? Oh, that's all you added? <laughs> okay. All right, well, that's it for now, guys. You are dismissed. We'll be back in like five minutes, all right? Thank you.